the Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome Symposium will be held in Sydney on Sunday the 16th of September 2018. This ATMS special event will bring together five diversely qualified speakers offering new insights into diagnosis and treatment of PCOS. For more information and to book your tickets, please go to atms.com.au and click on the events tab. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Professor Nigel Steptoe, who completed his studies at the University of Cape Town in South Africa before completing his PhD at RMIT in Melbourne in 2002. He joined Victoria University in 2007 after working at Monash University. His current research focuses on the role of exercise on health outcomes in people with chronic diseases, including polycystic ovarian syndrome, looking at intermittent fasting and HIIT training, and caring for women with the Active For Her program. And I warmly welcome Nigel to FX Medicine today. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for chatting to me today, Andrew. Now, I think right from the top, I need to um, inform our listeners that you'll be speaking at the ATMS Symposium in September 2018 in Sydney. So let's delve into polycystic ovarian syndrome and the physiology or pathophysiology um, that, uh, that happens during that condition. So, but first of all, I'd like to delve a little bit into your career. What sparked your interest to study polycystic ovarian syndrome? Um, this is uh, probably a very unique situation. Um, I happened to just finish off a lecture and was talking to one of the young students who was um, chatting about um, her challenges with um, a condition that I'd never heard of called polycystic ovarian syndrome and was telling me that it was she believed it was all about her metabolism. Um, so we got chatting and uh, from that we essentially, or I essentially thought it was a very simple condition and um, the simple answer would be to um, throw in some exercise and maybe to do some hard exercise in, in treating the condition. And, and from that conversation stemmed a, a very long research career. So it's now been um, about 15 years since um, my first research project uh, looking at um, exercise in polycystic ovarian syndrome and also trying to understand the pathophysiology of the condition. I hear what you're saying about you never heard of it because I can remember when I was nursing, it was so rare. It was something that you really rarely heard of. Indeed, I don't think I'd heard of it in nursing. I think it was after. Um, and then since then, there's this explosion. So I've got to ask straight off the bat, is it an explosion of the condition with Australia becoming fatter or is it that we're more attuned to looking for it nowadays? Um, I would say it's a combination of both, but I think it's more likely that um, we're, we're starting to understand the condition better and, and understand the challenges uh, that some women struggle to lose weight or have infertility can, um, infertility concerns. So we start to look a little bit deeper. Um, so I will preface this that I'm an, uh, an allied health worker, so I'm not really into the um, diagnosis, but in my understanding of the experiences of many of these patients um, is it can be a long and tedious process. Um, often. Um, general practitioners may not understand the condition or, as you say, may think it's a rare condition or something they've never heard of. So in conjunction with some colleagues I'm working with, particularly at Monash University and Adelaide University, um, 
we embarked on or um, I helped them embark on a um, exploration into polycystic ovarian syndrome and that uh, resulted in the development of guidelines in about 2011 Mm-hmm. Um, which basically helped, certainly in the Australian context, diagnosis um, and understanding the condition and recommended treatments as we understood them back in 2011. Um, and the good news is, is that um, sometime later this year that will be a, a new series of guidelines, which are now international guidelines, um, which will now help practitioners and women and anyone interested in the condition to firstly understand it and secondly improve diagnosis and treatment of the condition. So um, it is, as you say, traditionally rare, but if we do the figures now, we're looking particularly in Australia, around a million women with um, in Australia will have polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, be it a mild phenotype right through to the the more um, extreme and uh, more clinically um, visible uh, form of PCOS. Well, I've got to take first my hat off to you and the group that you've um, been researching with for writing first the Australian guidelines and, and having input to the international guidelines. Well done. That's good stuff. Could you take our listeners through a brief recap of what happens in polycystic ovarian syndrome as opposed to polycystic ovaries? What's the dysfunctional physiology or are they just totally separate? Um, Well, polycystic ovaries are actually a a symptom of polycystic ovary syndrome and and, um, is often required as part of the diagnosis. Um, so women can have and quite often do have cysts on the ovary and maybe a couple of cysts and will get diagnosed with some form of cyst or polycystic ovaries rather than the syndrome. The syndrome is far more complex, um, involving a lot more uh, hormonal imbalances. And currently we understand that it's mainly around the um, reproductive hormones, particularly um, androgens or testosterone. So you have an elevated level of um, testosterone and free testosterone which then ultimately obviously impacts um, fertility. But underlying that, there is this complex interplay um, of of insulin or insulin resistance, um, which is often measured as a hyperinsulinia, so very high insulin levels, and they have an interplay, um, which essentially creates this complex syndrome with a very um, complex and, I suppose, heavy burden of disease on the people who... Are trying to who actually suffer from PCOS and the people who are trying to help treat them, and that can be anything um, from subfertility, um, menstrual problems, um, through to high risk of type two diabetes, insulin resistance, and unfortunately, some of the clinicians tend to classify them as having metabolic syndrome on top of polycystic ovarian syndrome. So, some of these um, poor girls actually end up with two syndromes when realistically they only have the polycystic ovary syndromes. Ah. Uh-huh. Now, yeah. that's and, that's something that I'd group together. So where are we going wrong there? Um, well, we, can't, we don't have the exact evidence at the moment, but I think in the more extreme phenotypes of PCOS, there is an underlying metabolic condition that is specific to PCOS, but similar, similar in nature to metabolic syndrome. Right. So some clinicians may actually say that PCOS is metabolic syndrome for women, but it is, it is absolutely um, separate from that. And, and the interesting evidence is, is that there isn't this increased risk of cardiovascular disease that you'd expect um, with this higher um, with PCOS um, that you might expect if there was metabolic syndrome and PCOS. So I think the metabolic dysfunction that is classified as metabolic syndrome is more likely just a component of the disease. Is inflammation like this 
unresolved inflammation, this background inflammation, this sort of evil emperor which blocks leptin and other brain chemical uh, signaling chemicals. Is that a reasonable target or is this artifact? Is this maybe a, just a marker of what's going on rather than a target to approach? Um, that's a very good question. And, and obviously in some spaces when we can get fancy anti-inflammatories and purchase all the um, wonderful over-the-counter drugs t- tackling inflammation, um, from our, from my understanding within PCOS and certainly from the evidence that's out there that this inflammation that's associated with PCOS, like most chronic diseases, is potentially um, impacting the disease and making some of the burden of disease worse. But the reality is it's probably more a marker of it and having some impact as inflammation would on various um, metabolic markers and metabolic processes, but it's not it's not the cause of PCOS. Um, and it's often been found that resolving inflammation really doesn't change many of the clinical features of the disease. Gotcha. But certainly it's something to monitor and if it does get out of hand, it does need to be treated. Um, but then I guess you've got to tease apart you know, what you're targeting, what you're, what you're actually going to intervene with. And traditionally it's been you always have to inter- intervene at the weight um, part, if you like, of the cycle. But then there's a lot of ladies that don't have a weight problem that maybe they've got going to ha- um, going to run into that issue in the future, but they don't, at least at this stage, have a weight issue. So where then, if we've got a, a, a hormonally driven issue, plus or minus a sugar metabolism issue, where do you tease that apart and where then do you intervene? Um, that's a really good question, and often that's a really hard component to tease apart. And I suppose, um, as my background indicates, I'm a big advocate of exercise as medicine. Um, I'm also a big, also a big advocate that we need to set health goals that aren't necessarily about weight loss. Um, they need to be about health, um, health other health markers. So um, things like um, feelings of well-being are obviously a good marker. Rather than going for huge loss, weight loss on the scale, rather go for um, changes in waist circumference. So if people's pants start to get, particularly in these girls and from our experience, if they start to lose, they don't necessarily lose body weight, but they do tend to lose a lot of um, a lot of girth around their waists and their pants start to fit them better or start to get loose if they're doing exercise yep. um, for a long period of time. So um that is obviously one way to look at it. And in exercise, irrespective of the state of weight or whether you are able to lose weight easily or not, will always have major health health benefits for the person. Um, but I will preface that in saying that someone with PCOS may indeed need weight loss targets. Yep. Um, and I would suggest that it's an integrated approach. So it's not just about either doing lots of exercise or just doing diet. It's about doing a combination of both. That's going to be probably the most effective um, form of treatment. Um, yes, obviously, there's some medications that people can take, and but I certainly would say that in our current guidelines from 2011, and I think our international guidelines, which I'm unembargo to say anything about, have similar recommendations around um, pharmacotherapy being sort of second line if um, if the lifestyle therapy isn't isn't um, targeting those areas. So I wouldn't be able to tease out a specific mechanism of why they need uh, why they have such um, high weight gain or whether that weight gain can be stopped. But certainly through appropriate lifestyle, we can have major major impacts for these girls. Okay, so I just want to clear this up in my mind. So you're saying that they won't always have a a reduction in the metabolic or let's say hormonal disruption, even if they lose weight, there needs to be some other intervention. Is that what you're saying? 
Uh, that's one way of interpreting it, but um, from our experience that if they lose some weight or undertake exercise, they do develop, um, they do have a change in the hormonal stru- structure, but it's not something that they may um, see on the scale or measurable unless they're doing some sort of clinical marker measure. So the androgens do go down. Um, some of the reproductive markers, there's a hormone called um, antimalarian hormone, which is a marker of reproductive capacity, um, does actually change with exercise um, in a favourable direction to help with fertility. Um, and then obviously insulin resistance does actually, particularly in the overweight girls, does actually improve quite substantially. Um, just with lifestyle and and definitely with exercise. And what about the cyclical uh, mode, if you like, of of hormones? You know, like hormones aren't static. So we've got the periods in this instance to to think of. Are you talking about a normalisation overall of their periods? Um, I I would be hesitant to use the word normalisation, but I would say we do improve menstrual cyclicity. So so those hormones, the progesterones, estrogens, follicular stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, go back in or return to a, a more normal phase or pulsatile activity. We don't necessarily normalise it to someone who doesn't have TCOS, but we do improve it to the extent that it can help induce um, fertility and allow um, conception as well. And then obviously, I guess you've always got to bring this back to, you know, practically um, assessing this on an ongoing basis. You can do blood tests and things like that. But do you often use things like, for instance, women using their uh, ovulatory diary and things like that just to track potential benefits? And then you might confirm them with biochemical markers and more, you know, let's say invasive investigations? Uh, certainly from a research perspective, we definitely would head for the clinical markers. But from a practical clinical standpoint, a menstrual diary would be very, very useful because um, many of these women can maybe potentially only have four cycles a year, um, maybe even two, depending on how, how bad the condition is. Um, so if that, if the menstrual cyclicity improves, um, that definitely helps. Obviously, they can. there are some... Um, over-the-counter type uh, measures that people can use for ovulation these days as well. So that that's another way of monitoring. And and certainly I think um, monitoring waist circumference, either using a tape measure or just how clothes are fitting definitely helps. Yeah. And um, the one factor that probably we don't talk about is it's not necessarily considered pathophysiological is is, um, is sort of quality of life. So how are you feeling? You're, how depressed are you and things like that? You can start looking at some of those sort of questionnaires or tools to to see um, how women are actually feeling. Not just It's not just about the physiology as well. So probably shouldn't separate out the, the psychological um, oh, and psychosocial issues um, with PCOS because these women do tend to have higher levels of depression and anxiety. So um, things like certainly exercise through various mechanisms across a whole lot of conditions really improves that um, feelings or improves depression scores and, and anxiety to some extent as well. So very, very great interventions. There's obviously things like the DAS uh, assessment scale, which is more psychological in its in its uh, focus. But you've also got quality of life scales. Which ones do you prefer, which are more maybe appropriate to uh, women? Um, that's a very interesting one. It sort of depends on the context. Now, we've certainly used a DAS scale um, in our research. Um, it is something that can be used in a clinical setting relatively easily. So it's definitely a good um, measure of release of stress, anxiety and depression. But there are other quality of life scales out there. There's there's a plethora of them. I think the trick would be is to make sure if you choose one that you're using one that's easy to interpret yeah. um, and is meaningful to the patient. So anything from the SF36 
um, right through to the DAS. I think there's a, a few others, and uh, um, my uh, psychological psychology colleagues will probably not be too happy with me <laughs> for getting them. Um, but they are there, out there, and my my advice would be is if you do use them, they're really useful. But just make sure you stick stick to the same one with the same client and 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 monitor their changes. Um, there also there are um, specific tools for PCOS. There's the PCOS um, Health Related Quality of Life. Um, questionnaire out there as well. It's probably a bit more burdensome, a bit more of a burden for a clinical tool, but certainly in research, it's been quite useful to to actually tease out some of the um, PCOS specific health related quality of life issues. Um, so, it, for me to recommend a specific tool would be really difficult, but certainly very useful and very um, very helpful if that's a, a major concern for a some a client that you're treating with PCOS. Now, you've mentioned you're a fan of exercise, um, and there's so much controversy over which exercise. So you've got HIIT, you've got cardio, you've got your your circuits and everything like that, strength training. Um, which is best? That is that is a million-dollar question, um, and I'll, I'll jokes aside, I'll say that um, we're, we're looking for research funding to actually do answer some of those questions um, in a big um, national randomised clinical, randomised control trial mm. Um, over the next few years. Um, but, but the answer really is at this point in time, and, and the evidence is certainly back us up, is that any exercise for any duration is better than nothing. Um, it may be I'd rather recommend an exercise that someone will enjoy, um, they find enjoyable, will go back to, it will be challenging for them. And more importantly, if they get bored of that exercise, to try something else. And it doesn't matter whether they where people decide they want to go swimming, whether they want to start jogging and running, joining a um, a walking club or um, a, a, an outdoor exercise group or, or anything really um, just to keep them moving. But um, in terms of what would be really great is would be, could we find the most appropriate exercise program for women with PCOS? And certainly from the clinical data and from of our, some of our earlier research, we do find that women with PCOS in the context of exercise only do need to work a lot harder than, say, a woman without PCOS to, to get any to get any health uh, sort of clinical benefits on the PCOS. But even if they're not getting big, huge changes in those clinical benefits, just undertaking some exercise has huge health benefits and particularly around health-related quality of life and depression and anxiety. There's a real link here between what I'm seeing between polycystic ovarian syndrome and, let's say, um, uh, prostate cancer, in that once you're dealing with the androgens, um, you really must incorporate some brisk exercise. with Whatever that be, it seems like you're really pushing uphill so I guess where I go here, like I'm so glad that you mentioned enjoyment because we, we, know, we know from older trials that people very commonly embark on this sort of New Year's resolution and very quickly fall off the wagon. Same with weight gain. They quickly lose it. They'll get into their dress size, but then a year later or two years later, they've regained that weight plus some. I was also very interested in reading a paper a few weeks ago, and it spoke of athletes, uh, basically not that, not an addiction, but that the opioids that were released from um, high intensity exercise were short lived, and so it required another hit, if you like, of exercise. So you know, I'm wondering if you see a difference in women that maybe embark on the more socially orientated exercise, like walking in a group, versus the hardcore weight training, gym meathead type lifting, uh, like exercise, forgive me, not lifting necessarily. 
Um, well, that's actually an interesting question, and it's one I hadn't really considered before. But um, certainly, from the the women that we see, particularly in our exercise trials, they do really enjoy sort of the higher intensity exercise. Okay. Um, a little bit more than your your standard cardio exercise. But I think it's really hard, particularly at this point, without the evidence to say, you know, PCOS women will respond differently or have different enjoyments. I still think there's very much an individual and personal choice. And, right. and, and I think there's a there's an, under, an underlying, dare I go there, genetic um, background that might predispose people to enjoy and respond better to different types of exercises. And I think that's probably where we need to go. At the end of the day, I think just doing something so that the going back to the mantra of exercise is medicine or movement is medicine really is probably the best way to go at this stage without that really clear evidence to say which exercise is better. Um, and the most important thing, and, and to, to go back to it, it really is find something people enjoy. Don't just recommend them to go to the gym and lose weight. I think that, that uh, a lot of GPs do that, and I think um, that really is not helpful um, not helpful in, in treating patients because it's not just simply go and exercise and lose weight. It's a very complex condition that's a huge play between the pathophysiology and the psychology. So we really need to <laughs> think about what we say to people before we recommend things like that. Very wise word. Not just, I've got to say, I'm going to steal that mantra, movement is medicine. I love it. What about various diets? Um, is there any evidence or what do patients report? Um, that's a good question, and, and I will preface my response in that I'm not not a dietitian. I do, um, and I have published with um, a couple of really good dietitians um, the evidence-based guidelines from 2011. Um, and the bottom line from that evidence really was that it doesn't matter what diet you actually go on. So you can do the Mediterranean diet, you can do whatever diet you want that you can sustain, as long as there's caloric restriction. So um, Jumping on fad diets is probably not the best way. I'd almost recommend getting advice from a from a nutritionist or a dietitian who you can who who will engage with the client who's who who understands what they're about and is not trying to put them on some fancy drink or diet that they need to do. I think it's it's a it's a slow process. Um, and it's, again, it's another individual process. And at this stage, there's no one diet that's better than another. And what about those drivers of hunger? You know, I mentioned earlier, you know, sort of um, the brain signaling chemicals. We're all quite versed in leptin, but there's leptin resistance in obese people. Um, not, I, should, I shouldn't categorise all PCOS as being obese, but um, people with weight problems very often have this sort of leptin resistance, but there's a myriad of other chemicals as well. And there's a lot of drivers of hunger, not the least of which are physical. So how do you overcome that um, issue of hunger, particularly when you're looking at dietary interventions? Um, again, that, that is, that's a very good um, point. And I think there is a little bit of evidence that women, particularly overweight women with PCOS, do have more um, hunger drivers. Um, and they do tend to eat, um, they will tend to eat health more healthily, but they will tend to eat greater quantities. So you are, you do raise an interesting question around that those hunger drivers and the current information I have and my understanding of it is, is there isn't really an answer for that at the moment. Um, but certainly um, those, uh, so those very low calorie diets where you have hunger suppression going in there can be quite useful if if that is a major driver of, of the actual nutrition or excess caloric intake. But it doesn't seem to be, from my experience and from my understanding of the literature, seem to be the main driver of, of weight gain within PCOS. So there are a myriad of, of interesting and complex 
um, f- physiological processes going on there, not just from the hormones. Yeah. And you've been studying the euglycemic clamp, which is obviously only really available in a research um, setting. But can you explain this to me? I, I remember Dr. Mark Houston explaining this with regards to, you know, pre-diabetes and diabetes. But can you explain this and the relevance to glycemic control and even cardiovascular risk for our listeners, please? Oh, certainly. So the the uh, the clamp you're talking about, the euglycemic hyperinsulinic clamp, is is considered the gold standard to to estimate what we call insulin sensitivity. So how well the body will respond to a particular insulin dose. So um, it's quite a um, quite a, a slow and relatively simple procedure, but it does take about two to three hours, um, where essentially we we take an insulin dose, normally anywhere from um, 40, 40 milliunits of insulin to anywhere up to 80 milliunits of insulin, and we infuse it at a constant rate to get the insulin um, insulin levels nice and high. So that's around about the insulin level you might expect after a meal. Mm. Um, and then at the same time, what we do is we um, do what we call a variable infusion of, of a glucose solution or a blood sugar solution. Mm. Um, and that we, we variably we, we manually adjust that so that we keep the blood sugar um, at around about five millimoles. Um, right, so at the upper limit. Glucose. Yeah, so that the, the sort of I, I tend to call that middle healthy limit. Oh, middle um, healthy is, is it right? Five point five is the upper. Is that right? Uh, six six uh, six millimoles is normally around your pre-diabetes. Um, six six and a half is normally where you start to look at. Um, it's a, certainly at a fasting level, start to look at uh, the clinical yeah. clinical pre-diabetes and things like that. So so we do that over a few hours, and um, the higher the more glucose that we that we have to infuse. Um, over that insulin clamp, the more insulin sensitive you are. So, someone um, and, and and to put that into reverse, someone who is um, who has a high glucose infusion rate will be more insulin sensitive um, and not have insulin resistance, and their body will be sensitive to that hormone. Um, and the predominant tissues would be so predominant organs would be your liver, your muscle, and maybe some of your fat that will respond to that um, to that insulin that we infuse. From a clinical perspective, um, the next best way to assess that and where you actually assess more an insulin resistance is using the oral glucose tolerance test, um, where you see how much insulin and how high the glucose goes in response to a 75-gram dose that you drink, um, which is a more clinical way of measuring that. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that then I think you're too, the, there's some set clinical values around your two-hour um, glucose levels that will define whether you have insulin resistance or normal glycemic uh, control or type 2 diabetes. And those, the oral glucose tolerance test is probably a better measure in women with PCOS, at least, at least it seems to unveil any form of insulin resistance which may not be present at rest. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, that's why we tend to use the clamp or an oral glucose tolerance test in it, more in a research setting. Yes. Um, because um, they, they're obviously quite, even the oral glucose tolerance test is quite cumbersome, a cumbersome clinical assessment. Um, now, you mentioned a few red flags that practitioners need to be aware of, like, for instance, just passing people off um, to say, go and lose some weight, go and do some some weight training and things like that. It's really not giving full appreciation of the complexity of polycystic ovarian syndrome. What red flags do you really, would you, would you please urge people, um, practitioners out there to be aware of that you see people are doing wrong? 
Um, basically, it's probably very hard for me to make a, a call on, on diagnosis and, and, and the practices of general practitioners as a money and allied health professional. Um, but certainly, there's a, there's a, there's a few things um, that are, are quite important, particularly if, if young women, particularly those going into puberty, are having weight loss problems um, and they're not losing weight via usual, the usual treatments or approaches, that maybe there should be some investigations into polycystic ovarian syndrome. But appreciate that it's quite difficult to to diagnose at that um, pre prepubescent or um, puberty phase. Um, understanding that may the diagnosis may only occur post puberty. Um, I, I really think there are really no flags. I think each particular patient needs to be treated um, as an individual and go through um, the most appropriate steps. And, and I do do know that. There is still a lot of education needed um, around uh, an engagement with general practitioners to really understand PCOS um, and also other allied, allied health practitioners as well to, to actually understand it um, and make recommendations that are appropriate to each particular client. If it's weight loss that's needed, then, it, then the approach is around that. If it's fertility, um, again, approaches around fertility um, really should be done, and it should be done in a team-based approach with a patient-centred focus. So, in other words, the patient really um, what their needs are guides how that how that treatment goes, and it, uh, it really is a team effort. So, it's everything from their um, general practitioner, their allied health practitioners, nurses, psychologists, exercise physiologists gynaecologists, endocrinologists, whomever is in the most appropriate for them in the team. So in terms of red flags, I probably don't have any just that if you do have a difficult client and it does look like a weight a weight issue or a metabolic issue and potentially some irregular cycles or in some cases there may be some inappropriate hair growth um, and associated psychological distress with that, they should be treated accordingly and, and hopefully work with the patient as best they can. Um, and obviously take an, an opportunity to engage in, in as much um, education as one can around, around what polycystic ovarian syndrome is and the fact that it's not a rare condition, um, it is actually quite common. Nigel, without giving too much away, you'll be speaking at the ATMS Symposium in September in Sydney. What do you hope the delegates will take away from your talk? What are you hoping to concentrate on there? Um, I'm hoping to obviously enlighten the delegates about about the role of exercise um, as a therapy for PCOS. Um, provide some information around the um, around the evidence-based guidelines, of which I will be able to share the latest version of them with with the delegation, um, and hopefully enlighten the delegation to in, to engage in team-based treatment plans around PCOS, and, and to think um, to, to, to acknowledge and, and and embrace lifestyle as a as, as a as a really good and probably a cost-effective therapy um, for people with PCOS. I've got to say for our listeners, everybody, please go and look up Nigel Steptoe um, at uh, University of Victoria. Um, sorry, Victorian University. That's the correct vernacular, isn't it? Um, because your references I, I, that I've looked at previously, there's a couple of great ones like What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Fitter and also the Physical Activity and Mental Health in Women with Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome. And there's some really great articles there. So well done. I'm glad someone enjoys it. I'm never sure if people read it. <laughs> well, look, I, I think one of the best things as well is that they're often full versions of those so that people can actually learn from them rather than just a little abstract, which doesn't give you a really insight into what the research is really doing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Professor Nigel Stepso, I cannot thank you enough for 
I, I got to say, enlightening me. Uh, I, you know, there's a few things I need to really look into further. Um, you know, to educate myself about polycystic ovarian syndrome because I think my mind is way back about 10, 15 years ago, and I really need to catch up. I'll certainly be at the ATMS event, and I hope to catch up with you there. Look forward to it, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society.